the great fundamental issue now before our people can be stated briefly. It is, are the American people fit to govern themselves, to rule themselves, to control themselves? I believe they are. My opponents do not. I believe in the right of the people to rule. I believe again that the American people are as a whole capable of self-control and of learning by their mistakes. Welcome to Serve to Lead. I'm your host, James Strzok. As we get started, may I ask a favor? Please help us reach a growing audience by giving us a high rating on iTunes. With us today is a world-renowned ethnobotanist, Dr. Mark J. Plotkin. Mark Plotkin is a founder and the CEO of the Amazon Conservation Team. ACT, as it's known, works to protect Amazonian rainforest in partnership with local indigenous peoples. One part academic, one part swashbuckler with a roguish tinge of his New Orleans roots, Mark Plotkin invariably blinks to mind Indiana Jones, with one big difference. Mark Plotkin is not merely a screenwriter's creation. He's a highly productive leader who's received numerous recognitions, including as a Time Magazine hero of the planet. He's a prolific author and has just released an exciting and important new book from the Oxford University Press, The Amazon, What Everyone Needs to Know. His extraordinary career combines the realms of thought and action, and today he'll discuss a range of issues, from the rainforests and indigenous peoples, to Theodore Roosevelt and Winston Churchill, to the emergence of the pandemics that have rocked our reality in the early 21st century. Mark Plotkin, it's a delight to welcome you today. James, it's great to be here. Mark Plotkin, you're an ethnobotanist, which is defined as someone who works in the rainforest to see how people use local plants. That sounds romantic, perhaps prosaic, but why should people living far away, deep in their own daily concerns, be worried about the fate of the Amazon and other distant rainforests? Well, we live on one small planet, which in the light of globalization and pandemics and all these things show how closely we're connected. When the Black Death happened many hundreds of years ago, it took many hundreds of years to spread around the globe. Uh, the recent pandemic spread around the globe in several months' time, so that uh, we know that what happens elsewhere can affect us right here at home and vice versa. So when we look at the dependence that the industrialized world has on agricultural products, which originated in the tropics, when we consider the fact that corn, for example, one of our major uh, staples, uh, needs wild and semi-domesticated varieties to be interbred with it to increase resistance to pests and diseases, uh, farmers in Iowa have a stake in the rainforest in Central America. When we look at new treatments for new diseases, uh, sometimes we have to turn to old treatments for new diseases. This whole discussion over uh, chloroquine uh, recently uh, is based on quinine, which was first learned, up, at least by the outside world, from indigenous peoples in the Andes uh, four and 500 years ago. So that what happens elsewhere affects us here, what happens here affects us elsewhere. And the final note I want to say about that is in the age of climate change, you know, you can't make the case that climate change uh, will be won in the Amazon, but it's quite clear that the battle against climate change could be lost in the Amazon. So once again, what happens there affects us here. 
Mark Plotkin, you've written several well-received books, including Tales of a Shaman's Apprentice and Medicine Quest. What's prompted you to write your new book, The Amazon, What Everyone Needs to Know? Well, my latest book was uh, just produced by Oxford Press, uh, and it had a very odd origin in that authors set out to write their own books. But in this case, the press contacted me and said they would like to do a book on the Amazon for the educated public, and would I be willing to write it? So that was the genesis, which is the first of the books that I've written that I was asked to write. Uh, in that case, I had to then go to the books, uh, go to the Indians, uh, go to the other academics and say, okay, tell me what's happening now, because the Amazon is a rapidly changing place, seldom for the better. Uh, in that sense, I not only was able to draw on my decades of expertise, I'm an ethnobotanist, I focus on studying how indigenous peoples use local plants for medicinal purposes, but I had to talk to the specialists on the geology of the Amazon, who live in Holland. I had to talk to people who are specialists on human rights in the UK, and everything in between. So in that sense, it was like doing yet another PhD, because no matter how well you know and love and immerse yourself in a subject, whether it's the law, whether it's medicine, whether it's biology, there's always more to learn, especially in our hyper-informational age in which we all live. I'd like to give some praise, Mark, and I know that readers are gonna find this. They shouldn't be put off by the fact that it's from Oxford University Press and think therefore it might be some dry academic or hyper-specialized book. It's just the opposite. It, has all the background knowledge that only a true academic could have, but you're translating it so effectively and in readily accessible chapters. And I think it made me aware of this series Oxford has. It sounds brilliant. This is what everyone needs to know. You've really done something very special here, I think. Well, that's very kind of you to say, James, that I'm just following in the footsteps of people who wrote other volumes in the series, everything from the Cuban Revolution to uh, pollution. And the idea is that there are many topics uh, in the headlines that we all want to learn a bit more about, but maybe not too much. Uh, our our uh, mentor, Winston Churchill, had a life that's worth reading 700 pages on, but I don't think most of us have time or the interest to read 700 pages on much of anything else. And so this series is designed to give you more than you get out of the the headlines more than you get out of NPR, but not get you bogged down in the weeds, which are many books that are trying to deal with things in a scientific way tend to do. I think what the 200 some odd pages in this lovely book do is much of what you do in the big picture, if I might say, and that is you're ring, really bringing together the worlds of thought and action in a way that if you just did one, not nearly as much would get done. And of course, not nearly as many people would be engaged. Well, that, that's really the intention. And, you know, as an academic, you're trained to communicate mostly with fellow academics, which is important, but then you can't wonder why people aren't really interested in what you're trying to get across, whether you're working in the field of human rights, whether you're working in the, the field of environmental protection. So I think it's important that if you're an expert uh, in a field to be able to communicate the importance of that to a broader audience if there's a need to bring them in. And there's an old saying that what people don't love, they don't care for, what they don't care for, they don't protect. And that is something of an indictment of environmentalists who haven't made the case to people as to why they should care. 
Now, why should people care about the environment? Well, we all need clean air. We all need clean water. We all need medicine when we get sick. We all see uh, these terrible problems that are resulting in part from a change in climate. And so, yes, these things affect all of us. But if specialists are only talking to other specialists or the people that are dominating the conversation are people who really don't know very much about it, you end up with essentially a dialogue of the deaf. Well, that's certainly a great segue to look for a moment at someone who is sort of a patron saint, in fact, not sort of, a patron saint really of environmental and general leadership, and that's Theodore Roosevelt, because he was credited for his extraordinary work in helping lead the first phase of the modern environmental era at the turn of the 20th century. He famously explored the Amazon as well as collected specimens from African safaris. We're all following in TR's footsteps to some extent, but you have literally continued in his path in Amazonia. What have you learned from Roosevelt, and what would you like the rest of us to learn from Roosevelt? Well, Roosevelt was an archetypal leader in many ways, uh, as an environmentalist, as a politician, as a thinker, and as an environmentalist, you know, his record is not easily digestible by many people because he was a big game hunter. You can still see some of his stuffed specimens at the American Museum of Natural History, which he helped to build. And the lesson there is not unlike that of any leader that you study in depth, like Thomas Jefferson. You know, he did some things that uh, don't go down so well. But uh, on balance, it, it has to be weighed and see what he accomplished. And creating the environmental movement and establishing a trail uh, literally and figuratively for all environmentalists around the world to follow. And, you know, many of the great environmentalists, especially in the early years, were hunters. And they saw that, 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 that nature was being decimated, that animals were being decimated, and they wanted to protect it. So this idea that, you know, the only environmentalists should be vegans uh, is far too simplistic. And Roosevelt was an archetypal leader in the sense that he saw something that needed doing. Uh, There wasn't really a big constituency for it. There weren't really a lot of votes. But to me, a great leader is somebody who takes people where they need to go, um, whether they realize it at the time or not. And I think that's why so many of us environmentalists uh, revere him to this day. When I say environmentalists, I say that with a small e, meaning that you don't need a Ph.D., to care about mother nature. And the bottom line in the environment is it shouldn't be about whether you find the cure for cancer in the rainforest. It shouldn't be about finding immunosuppressant uh, drugs and fungi up near the Arctic Circle. It should be first and foremost an ethical exercise. And Roosevelt, as you say, was very much a man of his time in some ways, but also a person who speaks to us that we almost feel like we could talk to if he walked in today. His version of hunting had little in common with, in fact, I think we can say with some certainty, which you can't normally do about historical figures, that I I can't imagine he'd be anything but horrified to see some of these current abuses like people using assault weapons or helicopters to attack animals. That is just totally outside the kind of hunting he ever did. And he also said, as I'm sure you know, that he foresaw that, in his words, the camera would replace the gun. He knew that was something that was likely not to last, and much of the vision he had of how the environment would be protected was what we now call sustainable development. You know, great leaders have the shamanic quality to to see into the future, and it sounds 
sort of woo-woo crystal ball stuff, but time and again, we see people who were proven right, who at the time were, were talking about stuff that nobody understood, nobody believed in, people opposed, and this is one more example. If you look at tourism, uh, tourism is, last time I checked, the number two industry in the world, exceeded only by petroleum, and much of that is ecotourism, and people around the world want to go to the savannas of East Africa and take pictures. Uh, a, a, a lot more of those than people that want to go to the East Africa and shoot these poor animals. So once again, TR was able to look into the future and, 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 and see what the future held and how to prepare for it. And just one more thought on TR, if I might follow up on what you're saying. It seems, too, that his lesson is a reminder, too, about the humility we all need, because we can be certain that a number of things that we would agree are the most intelligent or most ethical or most wise to do, not all those are going to be viewed as wise or ethical or smart by future generations. That's just the nature of things. It has to be, how did we serve in the context of the times we were facing? Would you agree with that approach, or do you have a different take? I totally agree. If leadership was easy, then everybody would be a leader. And of course, most people do consider themselves leaders of some sort, but that's a longer conversation. But you touched on something important, which is humility. And you tend not to think of, 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 of people like uh, Roosevelt as humble, but I think that, that all great leaders, including TR, uh, have a, a, a humble gene in them somewhere. And they understand it's not all about them. And they understand that the leadership involves bringing a group with you. And you can't do that if you just think of yourself as the alpha male, the alpha female, and everybody has to do uh, what, what, what you tell them. Great leaders don't work that way in my experience. So when I, I look at TR's record, when I read the many biographies of his that I've read that, that I know you've read, uh, that, that shines through. Yes, and often that humility, I think it's very interesting, as you say, it doesn't mean that they're necessarily reticent in their presentation. They're often not at all. But they're often, I think, humble because they know the history and they're comparing themselves to historic figures, which will always keep one humble. I mean, for example, today, anyone who really gives it thought, if they look at TR's life and work and aren't humbled by it, I think they're missing something. I totally agree. I mean, the, 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 other, the flip side of that is it's hard to look at his life and work and not be uh, intimidated by how much that man crammed in a, in a relatively short life. So I, I think this sort of thing that, that he mastered and many other, not all others, have mastered is that, that combination of, of vision, determination, uh, maybe a little bit of arrogance. Uh, and the empathy and humility is, 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 is the hard part to get right. And, and we don't remember the people who didn't get it right for the most part uh, because it is a bit of a balancing act. Well, let's pull back to the present in 2020. This year represents the half century mark of the second phase of the modern environmental era. Earth Day, along with the US Environmental Protection Agency and a raft of federal laws came to life in 1970. What lessons can we draw from those beginnings as well as what lessons can we draw from the successes and setbacks of the subsequent five decades as we look ahead to a new century? Well, one of my frustrations uh, as a professional environmentalist is people not giving credit where credit is due. And certainly, uh, Teddy Roosevelt is the, the, the crowning uh, leader of the movement. 
but also Richard Nixon is often overlooked, and a lot of the best legislation was passed uh, under his leadership and with his support. So the idea that somehow uh, environmentalism was just tied to the 20th century, and it isn't more important than it ever was before, I, I just don't understand. And in an increasingly overpopulated planet, and in an age where the destructive powers of industry are so much greater, I just don't understand why people don't get the need to not only respect existing protections, but put even more in as we find out that some of the things we thought really were quite innocuous turn out to be quite harmful in the human body over the long term. Should be speaking to all of us, no matter uh, what political party, uh, what religion you belong to, that this is the human condition. And we all want to live long and well. And I think respecting Mother Earth uh, respecting Mother Nature is not just some sort of an academic or intellectual exercise. In so doing, we are respecting and protecting ourselves. That is a message which cannot be said often enough. Mark Plotkin, what are some of the positives and negatives of the environmental movement and the environmental legal and regulatory regime as it's now been absorbed into our... Well, national system that you would focus on? The great news is that there's a lot of environmental laws on the books. And as you know from your work in the state of California, sometimes these come up against uh, commercial interests, uh, 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 private property interests. And my feeling is the way this is built done with is compromise, uh, discussion, rather than saying, uh, we always have to protect the entire environment at all costs with the inevitable pushback, which is, oh, environmentalists are against people, they're, ag they're against business. Neither of these extremes is true. And there needs to be a much more conciliatory, conciliatory and positive approach uh, adapted. Uh, this is not to be Pollyannish and think that everything can be solved over a beer or everything is about meeting everybody halfway. No. But... Uh, the idea that environmentalism is, is just one political strike, uh, one religion, one anything, is really self-defeating in the end. It's interesting, too, that a new series of challenges, I think, is starting to poke up like some kind of iceberg in the sea or something. I mean, for example, in 1970, there were very few government regulatory agencies directly on these issues. There were parts of others, but not top of the line. And today, we have in many cases almost too many laws. They can overlap or they can be tremendously complex, rewarding the, high, the highly uh, resource types at the expense of others. There's also bureaucracies in the public side, just like in large corporations, that can begin to act in their own interest. And it's interesting to think about how those issues might be incorporated into upcoming concerns. Uh, I, I completely agree, and and it just harks back to what I just said, which is that it, it shouldn't be all or nothing. It shouldn't be about throwing out the baby with the bathwater. And if the law was enacted uh, with the with the best of intentions and proves unwieldy or or, or have negative consequences, uh, fix it. Don't say, oh, environmentalists are all against everything, and you know, uh, we, we we need to stop listening to them. That's way too simplistic and uh, way too combative and not constructive. There's an interesting generational aspect to some of this perhaps because 
a lot of the people who were coming of age when this began to happen in 1970 were a few years ahead of us. They were first wave boomers. And that generation has been very protective of the status quo they created. Whereas a lot of younger people, millennials and younger than that now, uh, seem to have less attachment to institutions and history they weren't a part of. So one wonders if that can be put to positive use to encourage a lot of reform as these demographic transitions unfold. You know, we live in a, a, a ever-changing and fast-paced world. That's a given. No, everybody understands that. So I don't, I, I mean, I'm not a lawyer, as you are, but it seems to me that, uh, that, you know, the Constitution was written a long time ago and we've managed to make changes uh, without scrapping the whole thing that, that, that's been the right way to go. So, yeah, maybe some people think some of these environmental laws are outmoded, but let's find a way to fix it. And if we have to replace it, replace it. But this idea that if you disagree with something, you throw it out, out the window uh, has, has, has proven disastrous for the most part. Yes. Well, Mark Plotkin, you are, and you have already referred to this, I think, um, in several contexts. You're a great admirer of Winston Churchill. Now, people think about him in many contexts, the extraordinary reach of his life being what it was, but usually people don't immediately bring environmental matters to mind when they hear his name. How do you view his leadership legacy, and how does it connect with your mission of environmental stewardship? Well, it seems that everybody who's tried to lead anything is, quote, Churchill uh, at some point. <laughs> I'm no exception. <laughs> but it, if you put yourself in my shoes for a minute, you know, I'm running a small organization. We're up against commercial interests, some of which are really, I mean, it's hard not to describe them as anything than evil. Um, we are uh, less harmed than they are. We have less people. We have less money. And uh, we've got to make a go of it. So when you think of Churchill in, in 1939 and 1940 facing the greatest war machine ever created, it's hard not to take heart that he was able to do the right thing and ultimately succeed. So I, I don't mean to imply that commercial interests uh, that, that we've come up against are, are the Nazis. Of course not. That's ridiculous. But uh, when you need to find inspiration by somebody who, you know, was the ultimate underdog and ultimately triumphed, that's the lesson. And that's true in the environment. That's true in the inner city. That's true in business. So I think these are the types of lessons you can and should learn without uh, milking this to death and, and you and I have had conversations about how these people always think they're Winston Churchill every time they come up against anybody anywhere and I think this sort of <laughs> oversimplification does O uh, uh, W S uh, C a, a disservice I think another aspect of Churchill that I think of you and your work in in a very positive way is that he had the insight before even the facts were in and before the experts could figure out any of it he had the insight about the threat posed by the Nazis now again not to compare every competing worldview or challenge as the Nazis but I, I think it's interesting because you and others have had similar insights on environmental matters, and certainly you and the Amazon, because when you were starting off on this, uh, and you know better than anybody, but it's certainly my sense that not that many civilians had much 
idea of how important this is, and you have had a real impact. Well, I, I, I thank you for those compliments, but it is true that, you know, myself and my band of brothers and sisters saw this uh, wave of devastation long before it hit. And of course, you know, in the 70s and 80s, Save the, Save the Amazon, Save the Rainforest was a rallying cry. Not so much anymore up until the fires of last year. But what we're equally concerned, if not more concerned about, is the destruction of these tribal cultures. A, because they're in place and have a bigger stake in these forests, so they're the best allies we could have as conservationists. And B, they know how to manage these forests. In other words, they know what plants might be biodegradable pesticides. They know what plants might be important new medicines. So yeah, I, I, I think that the, the, the people in my field can, can legitimately take credit for that. And that goes back to the earlier quote about how sometimes you're proven right in the future, even if you don't take a whole lot of solace in doing so. Much as, uh, much as Churchill was considered a, a Cassandra after he was sounding the alarm about the Nazis and everybody thought he was a warmonger, as you know, that, that term was thrown at him many times, and an alarmist. And uh, he wasn't a warmonger, but he was an alarmist in the sense that he was sounding the alarm about something that proved very real. So again, I don't want to make the mistake that, that many, many others claim that, yeah, they were, they were the Churchill of the movement of the day. But yes, uh, uh, some of us did see this coming uh, a long time ago. Well, as if on cosmic cue, amid the environmental anniversaries of 2020, the Earth is also afflicted by a pandemic. We can't know its outcome at this point. It'll likely reverberate over decades. Nonetheless, I think we can all agree already that it's likely to be historically significant. Could you place this pandemic in some historical and environmental perspective? Yeah, the, the important thing about the uh, recent pandemic was that it was human caused. Okay, this has been traced back to a so-called wet market in China where they're taking all sorts of mammals, uh, carrying all sorts of viruses, chopped them up, jammed them all together, and then cooked them and ate them. And so the, the, the most regrettable thing about this, and the, the story that's really not, not well told and detailed in most of the media coverage uh, that appeared was that this was entirely foreseeable, this was entirely preventable, and this was entirely our fault. And when environmentalists talk about, you know, we shouldn't abuse Mother Nature, they're often dismissed as people who don't understand the capitalist system, people who don't really care about people. But ultimately, aren't we the ones caring the most about people and nature and trying to prevent the next one, which is inevitable? So when you take animals that carry diseases, these are called zoonotic diseases because they're carried by animals, and you place them in close proximity to humans, uh, this is what happens. Now, the Black Plague happened because rats were carrying the Black Plague, which was a bacterium, and it jumped to people. Uh, in this case, uh, the, the, the recent pandemic was a virus carried by bats, which we're, we're a little unsure how they jumped to humans. There's talk of jumping to pangolins, other mammals, and then jumping to people. It's still being uh, investigated. But uh, it happened because we were stupid and greedy, and it's going to happen again because there's many more viruses out there in these animals in the tropics and subtropics. Uh, it's true in the Amazon. It's true in Africa. It's true in Asia. So we're, 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 we're you know, lighting the fuse yet again. And it's just 
has the potential to destroy us all. You know, people say the Earth is in trouble. The Earth is not in trouble. The Earth is fine. Nature's in trouble. We're in trouble. And uh, if we keep being disabusive and short-sighted and greedy, uh, we are not only fouling our own nest, we're destroying ourselves. So if the world in its wisdom were to say, you know what, Mark, you've been right for so long, we're just going to wait for you to tell us what to do next. What would you do? What would you say? Oh, I, I, I put a stop to the wildlife trade. You know, I've been told it's, it's, it's impossible because it's a billion dollar business. Really, we just dropped trillions of dollars to deal with this pandemic? So, no, I'm not feeling real sympathetic to people making money in the wildlife trade. You know, how many people uh, ended up dying from the pandemic? Well, it's going to take years to figure it out. But the cost and death and treasure is not a figurative one. It's a literal one. And if we want to stop this, we need to stop what causes it, which is the wildlife trade. And if we can't stop it, we need to manage it better, which is stop abusing animals uh, stop cramming them into filthy cages, um, bleeding all over each other, eating them, because this is what caused it. And, and we know this. this. This isn't some weird theory. This is widely accepted in the scientific world. So you don't want to go through this again. You don't want to go through a lockdown again. You don't want to worry about all the people in your family, particularly the elderly people again. Don't do it again. So what's the biggest obstacle to ending this wildlife trade? Well, it might be politically incorrect to say so, but it seems to be that this has come out of China. And to their credit, Chinese leaders have passed laws, enacted laws, saying uh, this has to be carefully controlled, but they've reopened the market. So uh, I understand you can't go in there and take pictures. So if it's carefully controlled, why can't you take pictures? So on the one hand, we need to stop abusing nature, all of us. On the other hand, we know where this came out of, and that's ground zero. That's where you got to start. You know, when kids are in elementary school and they misbehave or talk too much, they're sometimes given a timeout where they're forced to just go sit in the corner and reflect or at least be separate for a little time. And it's almost as if the whole world's been given a timeout right now. Do you think some of the results of this, which would include the dramatic increases, for example, in air quality that are visible to anyone's eyes in many places. Do you think there's an opportunity coming out of this to make people more aware of the reality of these issues and our connection to them as individuals as well as as groups and nations? Well, if you remember that great, great and cynical quote by Rahm Emanuel, who said that a crisis is a terrible thing to waste. And the answer to your question is, who knows? Clearly, it's an opportunity. Clearly, it's a learning opportunity. And clearly, nobody knows what will happen. What is most likely to happen, I think, in my cynical ways, we'll just keep muddling through and it'll be kind of business as usual. What I hope, and what you hope, and what many people hope is, uh, we will internalize the question and learn from the question and do a better job of stewardship uh, everywhere. You know, this isn't like, oh, the Chinese are the bad guys and all the rest of the countries uh, have this figured out or, and don't abuse animals or nature. Um, what I hope doesn't happen, which is actually quite likely, is that we've learned nothing and do the same old thing. And this comes back to leadership yet again. Are the leaders of the world going to seize on this and say, 
here are the five lessons. Here are the three things we got to do differently. Here are the six things that we're going to enact and, and put in laws to punish people doing the wrong thing and adjust tax policy to encourage people to do the right thing, or is it just going to be business as usual? And I think that it remains to be seen. You know, as, as many people say, let's hope for the best and prepare for the worst. Well, let's turn back one minute on that to Roosevelt and Churchill. The Roosevelt, as you know very well, he came to office to the presidency in a fluke. He would have been unlikely to become president in the traditional way. And had he not become president, uh, his whole service to the environmental movement would have been much more limited. Or in the case of Churchill, he didn't become prime minister until literally Friday, May 10th, 1940, as Hitler's forces invaded the West and there was nowhere else to turn in Great Britain. Now today, of course, we have many, many more tools where individuals and groups can express themselves online and so on. How do you sort all that out, trying to be practical about who and how a difference could be made? Well, we live in a much more difficult age for all of the obvious reasons. Uh, it is kind of fun to play what if. I mean, if you didn't have this terrible uh, McKinley assassination, if you didn't have this terrible rise of Hitler, would we be talking about TR or Churchill today? Or would we, uh, would other leaders have arisen and done great things? Who knows? Uh, it's fun to speculate, but nobody knows. Uh, nonetheless, how do you empower people uh, who could be great leaders, great visionaries, uh, and make sure we don't end up with the middle of the road uh, forever. And uh, nobody has the answer, I don't think. Hopefully, the, the fact that more people have a voice might lead to more diversity and, 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 and casting a wider net. Uh, hopefully, uh, everybody having more of a voice doesn't lead to a lot more negative populism, and you get the lowest common denominator. So once again, we can hope for the best and prepare for the worst. Well, let's turn for a few moments to your own life and work, Dr. Mark Plotkin. A big part of your effectiveness as exemplified in a highly popular TED Talk that you gave that's available on YouTube, a big part of your effectiveness is that you're a gifted and talented educator. Who are your models in this respect and why? Well, as a fellow New Orleanian, James, you know we grew up hearing lots of stories and New Orleans is a famous culture for storytelling. Look at all the great authors that came out of New Orleans that either were born there or spent formative years there, like, like Faulkner or Hemingway. So I think some of, of, of being able to communicate is growing up around communicators, growing up around people who like to tell stories. And working in the Amazon as long as I have, I spent a lot of time with oral cultures. And I learned from my mentor at Harvard, Richard Schulte, he's a great ethnobotanist, if you want to teach something, tell a story. And when I wrote my first book, Tales of Shaman's Apprentice, at one point I was having a disagreement with one of my editors who said, we need more science. And I had to actually go through and say, look, the science is in here. It's embedded in the story about when I, you know, was in, in search of the great black crocodilian. And so the, I, I call this sort of my spoonful of sugar approach. You know, it's right out of Mary Poppins. You want to give somebody some medicine, if you can sugarcoat it, uh, it goes down easier, quite literally. And I always like to listen to great storytellers and great speakers. One of the greatest ever was Daniel Patrick Moynihan. 
you know, I would sit in his class where I wasn't registered, didn't belong, but he was so spellbinding. I just wanted to sit there and absorb his personality, his stories, his way of looking at the world. So we all need mentors. We all have mentors. And I'm still uh, looking for yet another great storyteller, yet another great TED Talk, yet another great shaman who has a great analogy uh, to teach me. What advice would you have for young people who would be listening, who are at the dawn of their career, such as people in their early 20s? Well, you know, this idea that, well, just follow your passion and you'll always do right. Well, that's very simplistic. You know, you should always have a plan B. And in this ever-changing world, I think it's all the more important to be conversant with a number of disciplines. The old academic ideal of just becoming the world authority in some subspecies of lizard isn't really a good way to uh, be assured employment forever and ever and ever again. So this comes back to something that we both took advantage of, which is a good liberal arts education. And that is kind of undersold and considered unfashionable in this high-tech world. But I still think familiarity with other cultures, uh, learning languages, traveling, and being conversant in some biology, some economics, and tech uh, is the best preparation to move ahead. Sometimes people do get lucky. Sometimes people do have a great invention and and make a lot of money. But, you know, uh, a lot of people want to play professional basketball, and not many get the chance to make a living at it. Looking back, what advice would you give to the 20-year-old Mark Plotkin? Well, I would say that, uh, to quote uh, Louis Pasteur, that, that, that chance favors the prepared mind. So, yes, you should hope for good luck, but you should prepare for it at the same time. And that means spending as much of your time as searching out those great mentors, finding out those great teachers, uh, learning as much as you can. I mean, very little of life learning really happens in the classroom. And the idea that you learn everything you need to know between the ages of 18 and 22 is really quite stupid. I mean, when most of us are 19, we have a couple of things on, on our mind, and uh, the priorities are not, what am I going to be when I grow up? <laughs> so uh, keep reading, keep learning, keep taking classes, keep listening to TED Talks, uh, and, and it should be a lifelong quest rather than, okay, I did my medical degree, now I know all I need to know, or, you know, I, I figured out this one program that I've devised, so I'm going to make a great living at just tinkering this the rest of the edges the next 50 years way too simplistic looking back to the present day are there significant matters where you've changed your mind over time well I I, I think that a literally a come to Jesus moment was realizing that I had to work with missionaries um, because they have power in these countries in these remote areas and some of them are really well, they're all trying to do what they think is the right thing. But the ones that I've really learned to enjoy working with are the Franciscans, who have much more of a live and let live attitude than we got to beat our religion into these tribal peoples. And, you know, you got to take your allies where you can find them. Conservation makes strange bedfellows. And in my first book, I've had a lot of people say to me, like, well, you treated these people so well. And I said, look, I went in there with the impression that all missionaries were the people I had to oppose and I learned that some of them can be our most valuable allies can be and should be 
What books or other creative works have been particularly influential on you that you'd recommend to others? Well, the most influential book I've ever read is called Plants of the Gods. It was written by my mentor, Richard Schultes, and co-authored by Albert Hoffman, the inventor of LSD, and he talked about the role of magical plants in the creation of culture and religion. And it talks about how the origin of many things we take for granted may actually have started in these alkaloids and some of these plants that early people ingested. Number two I would recommend is a book called The Writer's Journey, where a Hollywood screenwriter looked at storytelling and said there is one basic story, which you know was put forward by uh, Joseph Campbell, it's the hero's journey. And it allows you to tell a story, it allows you to watch The Wizard of Oz, it allows you to write stories and understand what is that collective unconsciousness that, that, that uh, uh, some of the great psychiatrists have referred to and why people will watch uh, The Wizard of Oz or Star Wars 15 or 17 times compared to most movies, which is, you know, before the end of it, you know what's going to happen and you're ready to flip the channel. Sounds a bit like Carl Jung and Jordan Peterson, too. Do you recall who the author was of this book, The Writer's Journey? Christopher Vogler, V-O-G-L-E-R. Thank you. Claire Booth Luce famously instructed John Kennedy that everyone, even presidents, is ultimately encapsulated in a single sentence. What would you like your one sentence to be? <laughs> you put it on the spot. I would have to say that a sentence would be that he tried to do the right thing. And I don't think there's anybody that wouldn't want to have that describing them, uh, or even as an epitaph. But I must say, I can't think of many people who could have it as a, a more apt summary than you, Mark Blotkin. Before we start to go, is there any message you would like to underscore or reiterate? Absolutely. I'm often asked, uh, with respect to the Amazon, is the glass half full or the glass half empty? And my response is always the same. Any glass that's half full is half empty. And that's life. It's complicated. It's not all good. It's not all bad. Uh, what is important to me in looking at, at, at the field that I specialize in is people need to understand their stake in these far-off forests. People need to understand their stake in the well-being of the environment. It's not uh, just an intellectual exercise. It's about the well-being of uh, our medicine, our agriculture, our industry. It's an ethical exercise. And, you know, I'll close with, with one thought. And, and the shamans say that everything is connected. We would describe this as the butterfly effect. And they say that you pay a psychic price when you turn on the TV and see elephants being slaughtered. You, you pay a price, an emotional price, when you turn on the TV and you see the rainforest being burned down. And I think that's often overlooked in our go-go culture, and I think the period where you have to sit back and think and reflect, uh, like in this uh, recent pandemic, is the time to be thinking about how can I live my life in a more positive way? How can I reduce the stress that ends up killing so many of us? And when I talk to one of the greatest shamans with whom I've ever worked in my many decades of, of studying these shamanic cultures, he says, you know what kills white people? Worrying about worry. <laughs> In other words, it's the stress that we bring on ourselves. It's the stress that our medicine seems incredibly inept at dealing with, reducing, eliminating. That is so much of what troubles uh, industrialized society. 
And so it's something of a back-to-future, back-to-the-future approach that we have to go back to these ancient and some would dismiss as primitive cultures to teach us a lesson about being in the present and being mindful about what you do and trying to leave the, the campsite at least as good or maybe even cleaner than you found it. Whether you're hearing that from a shaman in the Amazon or from a Boy Scout leader, I think that message needs to be universal. Beautifully said. Uh, Mark Plotkin, how can listeners best follow and connect with you and the American, I'm sorry, the Amazon Conservation Trust in social media? Well, the easiest way is to look at our website, Amazon Conservation Team, which is amazonteam.org. I put up a personal website with some of my other jottings, non-Amazonian, like the Ethnobotany of Warfare, which is markplotkin.com, but I'm pretty easy to find on the web. And uh, if you poke around, you'll find me. And uh, there's lots of stuff to uh, be checked out. Well, thank you, Dr. Mark J. Plotkin, author of the exciting and important new book, The Amazon, What Everyone Needs to Know, available on Amazon.com. Thank you, James. And thank you, our listeners, for being with us today. Please help us continue to extend our reach by rating us highly on iTunes, following us on Twitter at James Strock, and connecting via our website, servetolead.org.